0: I grew up there. I have a deep familiarity with with the city and the culture, and I was indeed actually stuck there for 2 years during the outbreak. And I got to witness firsthand how that community was affected, especially the minority communities. The very large African American community in Memphis were affected by the pandemic. During the outbreak, we saw a huge spike in crime as people lost their jobs, as they lost their security, and I just felt like the violence had, had reached a point where, you know, it was better
1: just to get out of
0: there as soon as possible
1: black or white the police are seem to be conditioned to uh, shoot or fight to neutralize the person they're confronting but because there's racism a black person is often the subject of this treatment and I think it's really unfair and I think that this trend is going to continue and I don't see how it's going to change as long as we have police unions that protect their members
2: Word, I guess is systemic. There's a systemic police attitude towards suspects. There's a systemic racism problem, a systemic class problem. It all has to do with, with these issues that are seemingly intractable, at least in the United States. We seem to have, uh, especially now when we have the left and the right at such loggerheads in Congress and in the executive branch and so forth.
3: The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge.
2: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions
0: on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: Welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun. Joining our discussion on the latest case of U.S. police brutality are Harvey Zodan, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and former Vice President of ABC TV Network in New York. David Moser, Associate Professor of Beijing Capital Normal University, and Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. U.S. police brutality is once again under the spotlight after a motorist was beaten to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Tyree Nichols, a black young man, was beaten by Memphis police officers during a traffic stop and later died in hospital. His assault and subsequent death sparked protests across the United States as people demanded justice for Nichols. So let me start with um, Joseph, as I understand um, Memphis is your hometown, right?
0: That's right, yeah. Mm.
3: Then what's your first response to such a tragedy?
0: Well, I I grew up there. I have a deep familiarity with with the city and the culture. And I was indeed actually stuck there for two years during the, the outbreak. I got to witness firsthand how that community was affected, especially the minority communities. The very large African-American community in Memphis were affected by the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I think the, the, the city and the country had been trying to recover under some very difficult circumstances. But during the outbreak, we saw a huge spike in crime as people lost their jobs, as they lost their security. And uh, in fact, in uh, 2021, uh, Memphis was the murder capital. Of the United States, it had the highest per capita murder, and although that declined in uh, last year to to ninth position, it's still a testament to the suffering and, and the difficulty in that city. But you know, the other thing to remember about Memphis, or the broader context, is that Memphis has long struggled to find social justice with race issues. It's where Martin Luther King was, of course, assassinated. You know, Memphis became famous originally as the economic center for cotton, and cotton cultivation has a long, a difficult history with uh, slavery and post-slavery and Jim Crow. And then in the 1970s and in the, in the 1980s, uh, but, but really starting in the 70s, we had a lot of white flight where white people were moving out of the city to get away from uh, enforced uh, school integration. And it created this real dichotomy between suburbs and the city, where we had uh, entrenched poverty uh, that has been generational. Um, Mm. And uh, Memphis, in, in turn, was one of the last major southern cities to transition. To an African American led local government, uh, you know, Atlanta did this, Nashville did this, many other cities, but Memphis lagged uh, for, for a number of reasons that were related to various systemic biases that uh, prevented the African American majority from being able to, to take a bigger leadership role in the city. So we, you know, Memphis has, has really lagged and struggled. But in recent years, despite the, the the problem with COVID, it was really trying to I think turn things around. But I will say, even though I've probably said too much already, that. Like, uh mid last year, but actually in October, I had uh, the option of bringing my kids back from, uh, they were in Memphis with my parents, I, I had the option of bringing them back immediately mm. in the middle of the term and disrupting their studies or to wait until the term, you know, and, and bring them back during the long Chinese holiday in between terms. And I elected to, to spend the extra money and to put them through the discomfort um for a couple of reasons one because two women had been abducted and murdered on my on my daughter's university campus in memphis in my family's extended network of friends we had two people not people we were close to but we were close to people that we were close to who had been murdered in the last few years and i just felt like the violence had, had reached a point where you know it was better just to get out of here as soon as possible and i i hate to say that about my hometown but and, I, and i'm not saying that, that this tragedy justified the decision but i'm saying that's the way a lot of people feel
3: it's really hard to hear those uh, tragedies. You mentioned uh, it's uh, named as murder capital or an economic center for uh, cotton. But to most uh, non-Native Americans, I think Memphis is also known as the birthplace of uh, rock and roll and home of uh, Elvis Presley. And the state of Tennessee is you know, the birthplace of uh, country music and peaceful countryside landscape. You've already said uh, Memphis has experienced some transition, but people really associate these uh, places with major violent incidents or crimes except the, the assassination of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, as you just mentioned. In your memory, since when have local people started to worry about their safety? It's not just within last couple of years, right?
0: Well, you know, you mentioned rock and roll. In fact, I would say that you know, rock and roll, of course, is a child of the blues, and the blues comes from the slave tradition and we often say Memphis is the home of the blues. It's also the the home of what the, of Elvis, right? The, mm. Who the Chinese call the Cat King. Right. But um, in fact, Memphis, in some ways, uh, for for Chinese listeners, Memphis is a lot like Wuhan. It's a, a central city. It's kind of like in the middle of a, a lot of undeveloped areas. You know, the, the right on the Mississippi River. It's um, part of the delta, the the Mississippi Delta. But it's also a huge logistics center because it's it's right in the center of the mid south. So this is where FedEx has their global headquarters, Um, but it's also a place, unfortunately, where uh, a lot of uh, narco-trafficking flows through, but also there's a lot of uh, surrounding poverty. So, you know, these factors, plus the racial tensions and the racial history, these factors, in addition to the vulnerabilities that were already there and that were exposed further by by the pandemic, this is where we really begin to see violence uh, spiraling out of control. And it's true that Memphis doesn't have the reputation uh, of violence like, uh, say, Chicago, has had in recent years or like Washington had in the in the 90s and the early 2000s. But, um, you know, local people certainly are very much aware that that violence is something that they have to constantly be aware of. And and to be clear, everyone I know in Memphis carries a gun. Uh, My mother carries a gun in her purse. When I was in Memphis, I carried a gun with me everywhere I went. And, you know, that's embarrassing to say, but but it's a it's a simple fact. And while I was there in Tennessee, one of the reasons that compelled me to carry a gun was that the, the state legislature changed the law so that you didn't need to do anything in order to carry a concealed gun. So you had to assume that everyone else was carrying one in some you know, sort of strange map.
3: Mm. Then is such a incident or tragedy unavoidable? I would uh, pose this question to someone uh, from outside Memphis, probably Harvey.
2: From, I come
1: from Detroit, mm. and Detroit used to be the murder capital of the world. I'm happy that it doesn't have that title for the moment. But I can remember back in 1967, there were terrible race riots in Detroit. Mm. And my father had a grocery store in the inner city. The grocery store and all its contents uh, were burnt. And the the things that uh, were reusable were looted. And so one of my two endearing memories of that was my father crying when he went back to see his store, what was left of it. Uh, And the other was the National Guard troops uh, with guns uh, pointed out, driving along the street and hearing gunshots in the background. So that was uh, more than a half a century ago. And as a result of those riots and 150 other riots in other American cities, uh, President Lyndon Johnson at that time, he actually established what came to be called the Kerner Commission, And I think what it found is true today, maybe a little bit less, but still true today. And they concluded that the U.S. was moving towards two societies, one black and one white, separate and unequal. And it concluded that segregation and poverty created uh, the racial ghetto, a very destructive environment. And I personally think with all that we've seen over the course of the last uh, couple of weeks and the last couple of years, that we have to conclude that racism is baked into America's DNA. Mm. It existed before the country was founded. We had slaves in our constitution. People uh, of color, black people, are counted as subhumans, as three-fifths of a white human being. And so I think throughout our history, we've had this uh, sad tradition of uh, white supremacy, and it continues to this very day. And I have to say that I feel... Uh, Very sad as an American that I think the white supremacists and the conservatives uh, who back them are stronger than ever. It's Mm -hmm. a a sad time in America.
3: So, Harvey, you're saying uh, racism or white supremacy is was the major reason that may have led to the death of um, Nichols. But some people would argue, unlike the tragedy of uh, George Floyd or other cases, George Floyd was murdered by a white police officer racism mm-hmm. was not involved in Nichols' uh, death since some of the police officers in the case were also African-Americans.
1: Yeah, that's true. They were African-Americans, uh, but they were conditioned by the the system. I, and I see these uh, police, they look like very fine people when you look at their pictures, but not when you saw them in action. I think of these police, well, we call them Oreos. Mm-hmm. These are people with black outsides and white insides. And they they're just tools and cannon fodder Of the power structure. And uh, it seems like an extreme statement, but I think that is the case here. And when you know that uh, a lot of police are, in fact, black, and that black police and uh, police forces commit so many murders each year, I don't think it matters that uh, the individual officer is white or black or yellow or Native American or whatever. They are just tools of the power structure. And I feel so sad about that and feel so sad that in at least the last 50 years even we haven't made much progress we've made a little but not very much and i'm really sad to hear what joseph said about his experiences in memphis Mm. because well i haven't lived in detroit for a long time but i don't think most people in detroit carried guns back then but right now in america there's more guns than people so Mm. it might be the case in detroit as well this is very very sad and the number of those guns is directly related to the number of uh, murders and uh, incidents of crime in the United States. We're, we're awash in guns because of conservatives and because conservatives who believe that they have a constitutional right to carry a gun, and as Joseph said, without any preconditions, basically.
3: Mm. And David, uh, do you agree that uh, this is a result more of uh, racism or rather something related to the, the violent police culture. What Harvey just said re- reminds me of something like um, the talk given to black kids. David, you are living in China, and here in China, kids are, are told to turn to the police when in danger, but African-American kids in the States are, are given the, the talk through which the, they will understand uh, the police are not necessarily there to serve and protect them. So what does this tell us about the U.S. police?
2: Yeah, I think I agree with everything that Professor Mahoney and, and Harvey just said in terms, I do think that this is all in the context of white supremacist kind of society. Mm. But Harvey made an interesting point saying that these, these officers in some sense were Boreos, he said, black on the outside, white on the inside. Yeah. It's interesting because I've actually read some commentary saying a similar thing, but also saying you know, one of the problems is they're black on the outside, outside but blue on the inside. Mm-hmm. Blue, Blue meaning the tradition of police culture, Right. Uh, in the United States of policing, which has, I think, is a very complicated issue, but it's not that hard to see exactly what the components are. One of the things is uh, what Joseph said was the proliferation of guns, which has reached a, a, an almost surreal level in the United States, where where there are more guns than people. So what that means is there's a kind of a police mentality that says that anyone on a tr- routine traffic stop, or anyone who's uh, suspected in an empty street late at night, the the sort of default assumption is that they might be carrying a gun, mm. uh, that you would might be in danger, and that this is part of their tr- police training. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but part of the problem is that you have whenever you have a motorcade, I mean, a, a motor vehicle stop and uh, or or some kind of arrest in some area, there's instantly a sort of a, a feedback loop of adrenaline that takes place. Oh, by the way, it's that when you give the talk, the parents give the talk to their black kids. It's really mostly to the black male children. Oh. <laughs> because we're talking about the the heavy, the, the sort of ingrained stereotype is not with so much with black females, but with black males. And that's when you see all of these tragedies occurring. So there's a kind of this feedback loop of adrenaline with the uh, the the male, black male suspect afraid of the police because of, you know, rightfully so. We've seen all of the accounts of what happens in these interactions and is very afraid for their life whether or not they have a gun and then you also have the police the sort of blue they may be black but they're also blue which means they're part of that police mentality Mm. where the the protectors of law and order and everyone around you is a potential criminal that has to be treated as if they're deadly force so it is true that there is this issue and on top of all of that so the police are also worried because they've been trained to be aware of this. But another thing, these uh, five officers were a member of this new unit called the Scorpion Unit, <laughs> which was uh, which was <laughs> for Street Crimes uh, something Operation Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods, which is a kind of a new system or a new organization as far as I know. But if you listen to that name and sort of the ethos behind it, it sort of says these are the heroes of law and order who can who are preserving peace in our neighborhoods and are are justified in using force wherever they seem to want to use or wherever, wherever it seems necessary to them. It's sort of the personalized uh, trial by cop, trial by not by jury, but by cop, who determine that you're dangerous and you need to be locked up or shot. So, I mean, th- this we could go into a lot more detail, but this dynamic, which is built up over the years, is a product of both the gun proliferation and, and the excess guns. The past history of innocent or just uh, ordinary black males being confronted and escalated violence and being shot by police. And then, you know, also uh, the fact that the police have been told or they have a self-image of being these sort of the law is in their hands and they're the front line. Mm. Instead of treating each each situation according to what the context is, if you watch the videos, these guys were not just making this person uh, safe or non-threatening by handcuffing him, they were beating the living daylights out of him. Yeah. There was there was some hidden anger and uh, built up sort of hostility, probably felt also fueled by sort of adrenaline, male sort of proclivities towards violent solutions. So it's very, very hard to break that cycle because it's so it involves so many entrenched social problems.
3: Is it because they don't have to fear for any consequences caused?
2: Well, obviously, that has been true in the past, if you look at the, these sorts of interactions, which as far as I can remember, maybe Harvey and Joseph can confirm this. But the first one I really remember was the Rodney King beating in Los Angeles. That was, I think, one of the first, if not the first sort of interaction like this it was caught on videotape. So yeah, I I think that those cops uh, got away with it. I mean, they were tried and I think they all got uh, exonerated. And that was one of the the, the causes of this LA riot that took place. So I think the system has gotten more careful in this. You you notice in this case, when the five officers, they were immediately fired and immediately arrested. And I think they're charging them with second degree manslaughter. But I think the the, uh, police departments and the city governments have gotten a little bit hip to the fact that you have to take action immediately and essentially, they took some action that showed that, that these officers were not being held uh, to be blameless. But I don't think that that's in their minds when they're when they're beating up these suspects. Maybe. They're in a very different mindset they're not thinking of what the possible legal ramifications would be I'd like to add something
0: sure yeah in fact there are a lot of unanswered questions in this case Indeed. and there's a lot of a lot of confusion and a lot of contradictions that are really hard to sort out at this time so for example the police chief Sarah Lynn Davis she was previously the police chief of Durham North Carolina she's the first woman and first certainly first black female to be uh, the police chief in Memphis and previously, she was the head of a National Association of um, of Black Law Enforcement Officers, and she had testified in Congress in the aftermath of uh, the George Floyd killing. And so she was hired into Memphis, I think, very, very proactively with the intention of trying to make sure we didn't have a repeat of what happened in Minneapolis in Memphis. Mm. But because we also had spiraling crime and murder, and, and this is one of the reasons why she's hired, uh, she was the one who formed the Scorpion unit. And uh, there's a lot of uh, information out there, a lot of rumors in Memphis right now about why he was pulled over in the first place. And and there's this allegation that he was driving recklessly, although the police department has since been a little soft on that claim. And then why the Scorpion unit was operating in this neighborhood, where it, which is not a high crime neighborhood where, where this individual was was living. There's been a lot of rumors, and I don't want to repeat any of the rumors that I hear from friends and, and whatnot about why, that it was something personal, that he was targeted in some way, that this wasn't really about race, but about something between people. I, I don't have any reason to believe that, and and so um, we'll see where it goes. But um, there's also reports that, you know, although that unit has now been suspended, that one of the reasons it was formed was to go after reckless drivers. <laughs> because they wanted to shift away, and this is according to a New York Times story, they wanted to shift away from writing tickets to a more aggressive action where they seized people's cars. And the reason for doing this isn't explained. Maybe it's to create more charges or more financial <laughs> rewards for the department, uh, given the, the tight funding situation. So it's kind, of, it's kind of strange that you would have you know this sort of tactical unit and, and their real purpose is to go out and have confrontations with drivers so that they can end up seizing their cars. The other part is that there there are reports that the reason why the five officers were fired so quickly is because they were not members of the police union and as a result they had no union protection it's also reported that they were only had only been members of the force for a few years in other words they're not among the more senior or more experienced officers which could be a good thing or a bad thing but interestingly there was uh, also a report that the initial encounter was initiated by a white officer who has since been suspended. It's not been said that he's been fired or protected because he's a member of the union. We don't know this yet, but there are allegations in the community now that he was protected by the system because he was white. Uh, I doubt that that will prove to be the case, but it may be that he he has some protections because of the union. But according to some reports, he's the one who initiated the encounter and initiated uh, the attack But the five Scorpion officers are the ones who then pursued Nichols once Nichols tried to flee being attacked by the original officer. And uh, they're the ones who delivered uh, the fatal beating. So there's still a lot to this story that we don't know yet. Uh, On the one hand, we can point to Memphis moving very aggressively to try to deal with this tragedy. We have a police officer who's very sophisticated in dealing with this uh, a police chief. uh, But at the same time, she's also responsible in part for this unit for being in place in the the first place. And let's be clear, every city where we've had these type of tactical units formed, we've had these types of abuses. It goes back decades, but where it really began to accelerate was after 9-11 when the US government started giving all this money to local police forces under the guise of um, building up domestic security. And it created this new militarization of local police forces. So it's it's not a new problem, it's an old problem, but, but that was an interesting starting point. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: You're listening to the chat lounge, and we are talking about police brutality in the United States. Maybe that's uh, what David just mentioned. It's the police mentality. You're saying it's formed after 911. But does that justify um, the fact that um, America uh, has got a higher rate of uh, fatal police shootings than other countries? I mean, other countries, they, they also got their own um, police forces and they've got their own missions to accomplish, like prevent uh, crimes why the fatal police violence rate is so high in the states?
0: Well, I'll tell you that that there's a, <laughs> as a Marxist, I'll give you the leftist answer to this question. All right. Although I don't know if all of my compatriots would agree with me. And that is, in the nineteen early 1980s, during the Reagan years, but it was not just Reagan, it was a national movement, we began to see the dismantling of social services, and this continued throughout uh, the Clinton years, the breaking of unions all the way up through Clinton, but also social services like mental health services. And this trend has continued. While the middle class has been shrinking, while people, while we've seen a decline in real wages, and while we see periodic problems like the financial crisis in 2008, which set a lot of people back, and then we have the opioids epidemic, and then we have COVID. And these crises end up compounding and further eroding uh, society's capacity to care for itself or even government's capacity to care. But at the same time, all of the responsibility, you know, anytime we have a problem in American society, the first responder is a police officer who is heavily armed. Who is trained to expect confrontation, and who is trained to out confront whoever he has to confront? So instead of other countries that we see in in Europe who have mental health counselors who can be called upon to help resolve conflicts, or in the UK where most of your officers are not armed and there and therefore they have incentives to deescalate, um, uh, we have these we have these police officers who are trained generally over a course of just a few weeks. And this is another difference. and in, in, in Europe and other places, the, the training takes a much longer period of time. Mm. And then they have to go out and deal with every possible social problem. They're the first responder. And it's not surprising, therefore, given all the other problems that we have sociologically and because of uh, the legacy of race and other issues, that we have these types of confrontations.
3: You're saying they they're overwhelmed by... Um all kinds of uh, tasks. So they have this right to. They're
0: being asked to do a lot of things that they are not trained to do, that they have no business dealing with. And in the way that they're trained is, is very often the worst possible way to deal with the problems that they're being asked to confront. So that's one side of it. And, and I've heard that from interviewing police officers. The other side of it, the thing to recall, and this is the leftist argument, is that, you know, we have in the United States the highest incarceration rate in the developed world by far it disproportionately uh, incarcerates black men. And there are people who will tell you, there's a, a lot of people on the left who will say that this is not a conspiracy, but given the use of prison labor in the United States, given the fact that prisons themselves are often private companies that, that hold contracts, that this is uh, an economy, that there's a, there's a huge prison economy, and there's a desire to feed it with new inmates, with new workers, because a lot of people uh, sustain their living on that. So uh, whether or not that's true, it's, it's certainly something that a lot of people raise in the context of this discussion.
3: Then uh, Harvey, what's your take on this issue? Why are they justified to do so, even if they're, you know, got a lot to deal with in their day-to-day work? I
1: think a lot. A lot of studies have been done about about this. It's still hard to say.
3: Mm.
1: But if you look at America, if you look at its white supremacy history, its racism, the fact that we fought a civil war over uh, slavery and uh, it didn't solve the problem. If you look at the fact that America has so many guns more than in any other country, as we've said, more than uh, one gun for every man, woman and child in America. If you look at the lack of uh, police training, if you add all these things up, the police are doing an impossible job uh, and they're poorly trained to do it. So imagine you're a police. Man or a police woman, and you're confronting someone. The uh, preposition uh, that you take is that the person is armed, and they might kill you unless you kill them. So it's basically you uh, beat the crap out of them or kill them Mm. before they can do the same thing to you. And so there's really something wrong with that picture. And we haven't seen much improvement, despite the fact that there's been a sensitivity to this over the last uh, half century. I think part of it uh, is what Joseph talked about, how things in America have changed since the Reagan years when we had a president who said that uh, government uh, was part of the problem, not part of the solution. And I think that that's a big part of this. And I think what, something that happened the other day is very indicative, although it's not directly related to this, and that is that we have this organization called the College Board the college board is the organization that does tests that determine people's you know futures because of whether they get admitted to harvard or some you know lesser school they also have tests called advanced placements and advanced placements are tests that high school students can take to earn college credit even before they start college and they had proposed in terms of black studies advanced placement including something that we call critical race Theory, which Mm -hmm. is exactly what we've been talking about this whole time about this history of racism in America. But one politician who's running for president, whose name is not Donald Trump, but Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. DeSantis means he's from the Saints, but I think he's the devil incarnate. He's a smart cookie because he went to Harvard and Yale, but he's playing the race card. And so the college board agreed to basically gut this advanced placement and to take out things like this critical race theory and to replace it with things like black conservative thought, the thought of people like uh, our wonderful Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who is the most conservative person on the Supreme Court. So I think this is indicative of the fact that white supremacy is alive and well in America. And the culture wars are being won by the people who believe in white supremacy and uh, who are the ones who are fueling the society and making sure, for example, that uh, people who make billions of dollars pay no tax while black people and middle uh, and other people, uh, middle-class and working-class people pay the bulk of taxes. There's really something wrong with this picture, especially if you uh, compare it with China that's on a tear now to try to achieve common prosperity. I think in America we need to reorient our priorities, but I, I just think we're falling further and further behind, and it really it saddens me a lot.
3: But um, you're saying if um, Nichols was not a black guy— Things will be different or?
1: Well, I'm saying that uh, black or white, the police are seem to be conditioned to uh, shoot or fight to neutralize the person they're confronting. But because there's racism, a black person is often the subject of this treatment. And you look at Nichols. I mean, he doesn't have uh, any kind of criminal record. He's a father. He has a job. He's really an exemplary person from everything that people have said. But I think because we're so conditioned, uh, racism-wise, that blacks are bearing the brunt of this. And I think it's really unfair. And I think that this trend is going to continue. And I don't see how it's going to change as long as we have police unions that protect their members. So the statistic is that only 1% of police who are uh, accused of uh, crimes in the course of their duty Mm. are the ones who get convicted. Why? because they're protected by police unions who have this uh, code of silence. There's, it's like the mafia code of Omerta, you know, that you, you don't talk. And it's one of the reasons that even Democrats who back labor unions would like to see the fact that there needs to be an affirmative duty on behalf of police to intervene when police are uh, themselves committing uh, crimes or acting poorly. And in the United States, Attorney General Merrick Garland has made this a policy, but it only applies to the federal level. It has to be done by Congress if it's going to apply to the 18,000 independent police forces across America
3: how have
0: it- one point there though you, you asked the question you know one of the things that you have to understand about Memphis mm-hmm. and this is true of many cities although it's certainly absolutely true in Memphis is that the neighborhoods are, are highly segregated he was he was near he, he died or he excuse me his, his his final attack he died three days after the attack but the final attack was within a hundred meters of his home yeah he would have been stopped uh, initially by in a, in a black neighborhood. In other words, this this unit was patrolling this neighborhood. But we also know that statistics indicate, even though policies officially have sometimes been changed, nevertheless, we, statistics still indicate that there's racial profiling. So then when, uh, people are more likely to be pulled over if they are a minority, but and no. um, that the confrontation is more likely to escalate uh, by the police officers themselves.
3: But it could happen anywhere in the United States nowadays. It's not just um, communities of, of black people. It can happen anywhere. Harvey just mentioned how um, those police officers are well protected by the police union. Yes, probably because they are, you know, most protected bunch in the states. I, and it, uh, Yeah, that I, don't has the,
0: lo- I don't think the unions are the one. Uh, unions are, are, are an issue. I, I don't want to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but from my understanding, the bigger problem is, you know, I think what what, what he was saying with the mafia reference. Uh, in other words, the policeman, you know that if you testify against one of your fellow officers, that your other comrades won't trust you anymore, and that you won't be able to count on them in difficult situations, that they may allow you to be ambushed, that you might uh, find yourself needing support, and they won't give it to you. So there are consequences. There's a you know, what they call the United States, the thin blue line. And this, by the way, this culture really came back in force. And and I saw it everywhere in Memphis in the wake of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Because what we started seeing then, not just in in Memphis, but around the the country, is um, these these American flags with one of the white lines uh, blue. And this was like the anti-Black Lives Matter flag. And so you would see... And a lot of white communities on the back of a lot of white people's cars, these stickers with this blue line for one of the white lines of the of the American flag, indicating that they were on the side of police against the Black Lives Movement. And, and in some, you know, implicit way almost supporting a certain type of police brutality as, as a necessary evil to deal with what they saw as minority instigated crime. So Um, these are all things to consider
3: yeah and you're talking about this uh culture uh david i I understand you're into culture but not necessarily this this type of culture but can you try to um put it into context how has such a culture developed in in the country well
2: i mean we've talked around this a lot yeah Uh, even on past podcasts we've raised raised this sort of issue Mm. the word i guess is systemic there's this systemic police attitude towards suspects there's a systemic racism problem a systemic class problem it all has to do with with these issues that are seemingly intractable at least in the united states we seem to have uh, especially now when we have the left and the right at such loggerheads in congress and in the executive branch and so forth but i think a lot of us see these things and we, we sort of everyone has an idea of of sort of how the things should be revised or should be could be improved I mean, the examples um that Joseph was just giving the fact that simply having we, for example, African Americans more represented in the police force and even the, and and women as well, mm. women can have an extraordinary effect on these sorts of dynamics if they're involved in one of these uh, sorts of conflicts that result in violence, but not always. I mean, the women are also they're they've also got the blue in, in a stripe in their blood, also they're part of that mindset. so. I think we sort of see some of the things that we need to do, some of the the tweaks that need to be made. And and we are making them in some sense. There's been some revisions. They're mostly ineffectual because things like Biden's executive order.
3: Yeah.
2: An executive order is not the way to make law, especially not federal law. It can be canceled by the next president. Mm. So this is a more systemic thing, as I said. It has a lot to do with class. You know, for Chinese who are interested, if you can this is a silly suggestion, but in a way, I'm sort of serious about it. You go look at a very silly reality show from maybe twenty years ago or something that was just called cops. And all it was was a stupid TV show about that followed the cops around on their beat and just filmed the uh, you know the kinds of problems they had to encounter. And uh, in a way, as silly as that program was, you did see sort of the issues a lot of the issues coming up there, which is, most of the stops and most of the problems they had to solve were not things that were in the police officer's purview that had to do things like uh, child custody cases, domestic violence, drunkenness, and so on, or maybe just uh, some kind of a misunderstanding. And the cops were supposed to get in here and solve these problems. But also the clear class issue that it was very clear that whether it be black or white or whatever color, it seems like there was always a class issue involved, that these were very low class uh, people from a very economically challenged backgrounds who are the ones that were being, you know, get the, getting the police called on them. So I think overall, there's a sort of a global situation, which is economic inequality. And then, of course, add to that systemic race and racism and historical racism, which, by the way, Black people are not immune to this. I mean, we know, for example, that you know, when you live in a society where you have so many messages about race differences, that Black, white, whatever, they absorb these uh, sort of stereotypes and they can be active. I even know women who have very strange sort of anti-feminist leanings because they've grown up in a culture. So I think it has to do with the big issues that we all can pinpoint, which is economic equality, equality of opportunity and uh, racism and sexism. Mm. (laughs) It boils down to, to those, although there's a lot more to talk about.
0: The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: You are listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are talking about police brutality in the United States. Yeah, you're saying it's uh, systemic and uh, it's quite deeply rooted in the in the system of the country. And uh, in Joseph's narrative, it sounds like uh, it's hard to be changed, and it's kind of um, like incurable. But um, I got some observation here in, in China. We got this law governing police forces, and it stipulates that... Um, the core mission of the police forces are to, you know, protect the public and to serve the people. So here in China, whenever you got problems, you go to the police for a solution. But uh, in the States, I understand uh, that day I, I discussed this with my another colleague and she was surprised to know that, you know, to serve and protect this model is not necessarily um, stipulated in the law or or the Constitution of the U.S. If if neither the Constitution nor uh, state law impose a a general duty upon police officers to to protect uh, individual persons from from harm, even when they know the harm will occur and, and police can watch someone attack you, refuse to intervene, as what we saw in the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas last year, and not violate the Constitution, so, whom are the U.S. police supposed to serve and protect, and how can you ask them to to do something properly to protect, uh, you know, the public when it's necessary? That's a question I'm, I'm asking.
0: Well, can I add a funny story? Sure. I think a lot of people don't really understand. Like, you, you see the you see the brutality, you see the images, you you know that it's happening. But there's a real lack of perspective because you know we don't have a lot of police brutality, for example, in China or Shanghai, and so um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say two things regard. One, oftentimes it's really difficult to get police involved in China. You you almost have to like threaten them to respond. American police, they're always they are always like uh, too eager to, to try to get into people's business for, for whatever reason. But uh, Chinese police, they, they would much rather you work out your issues yourself. Uh, th- th- there's almost a different type of social responsibility here. The other is, is a story that I was one night in a, in a police station in, in Shanghai uh, over the course of several hours with, with my lawyer trying to file a case on something. And a a guy came in and I don't know if he was mentally ill or drunk or whatever, but he starts trying to break into the jail and he can't because, you know, it's impossible to do. So then he gets really upset and he starts causing a lot of trouble in the in the station. And he's uh, verbally abusing one of the bao an, one of the, the guards who greets people when they come in. And then he keeps uh, trying to abuse the, the the phone system. And then he keeps smoking and put, and, then, and and then one of the policemen tell him not to smoke. And then finally he repeats this cycle three or four times. And then all of a sudden four officers came out and they pushed him out of the station. Okay. And then the guy is standing outside and he's screaming, "F your mother, f your grandmother, f the seven generations." Blah 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 blah. Right. But he's, he's never beaten. He's never hurt. He's just pushed out. And my lawyer turns to me and says, I'm really sorry that you had to witness police brutality in China. And I'm like, you know, yeah, if this was the have- United States, that man would be drowning in a puddle of his own pee right now in some dark corner, right? Mm. Um, so it's. It's really i think difficult for people to understand this sort of cultural difference and, and by the way the, the show uh, cops um this is a a, a a sort of a cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. um and, and not just cops are many other television american television is rife with police what we call police procedurals right and so we got these reality shows about cops but then almost all these other shows are about cops and the heroic roles that they play, but also sometimes the conflicted, um, corrupt roles they play. But the system is basically good in trying to do a good thing. This
3: yeah, that's this pro- is this an that. incredible...
0: Morris, yeah. We all know that, that there's this tremendous problem in the United States. Mm. Black and white people know this. Certainly Latin uh, Latinx people know it. Uh, Native Americans know it in, in their jurisdictions. We all know it's a problem. But at the same time, we have this sort of desperate Hollywood attempt to always try to um, uh, valorize and, and create these heroic figures out of out of police figures when we all know that it's that it's a highly compromised uh situation that that is really eating away at the soul of of american society
3: so you're you're saying um, american people are actually accepting it as a fact or something that cannot be changed
0: you know i don't think american people really accept things i think there's a deep frustration and um uh, just an inability to move forward in part because of this intense uh, political polar- polarization in part because of growing racial polarization and it's, it's not all about race there's ideology there's class there's there, but race has, has has made us a huge comeback as we saw during the pandemic with the with the huge spike in in um, uh, violence against asian americans and as we saw the pandemic itself disproportionately affecting uh, african americans and latinx and, and um, uh, american uh, indians native americans so you know we keep cycling back to these traumas, yeah. and you know, there's, there's this. Um, um, I don't know if if David would agree with this because I'm I'm playing a little fast and loose with theory here. But we know that in in psychology, that when people are abused at a young age, that they tend to repeat the cycle of trauma in various ways throughout their life, and and we. It, 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 so if we take that idea and we apply it to a, a huge national sociological context, we have to remember that the United States starts with native american genocide it, it continues with taking land and at uh, gunpoint from people associated with with central america and mexico it continues with the worst examples of slavery african slavery in the united states and all of these legacies are still in play they're all part of this culture and although you know we periodically do something where we pat ourselves on the back like obama becoming president we turn right around and elect someone like trump who explicitly deploys dog whistle tactics, who explicitly says not just bad things about uh, minorities in the United States, but in the global South, right? Who, who demonizes uh, China. So e- e- even when we make like a half step forward, we, we seem to take three steps back.
3: David and Harvey, what would you say? Um, do you see this police brutality can hardly be you know stopped or changed, um, at least in the near future?
1: I think uh, it's possible that over time it could be changed. But the problem okay. is, and we've just come off of Groundhog Day, this, remembering the Groundhog Day movie where events repeat over and over and over again, or Yogi Berra used to say, deja vu all over again. So this seems to be a pattern. Yeah. But on the horizon, it's possible, maybe, maybe not this year or next, but it's possible that we can get some justice, like with the legislation, like the George Floyd Justice and
3: Policing Act,
1: which was passed by a Democratic House. It cannot pass uh, the Congress. uh, I'm
3: sorry? It can't pass the Congress. That's why Biden has to issue this. Yeah, it
1: can't pass the Congress now, but Mm -hmm. I think at some point it could pass, and it actually, it needs to pass. And if it doesn't pass, then America is going to continue on its uh, downward uh, slope. So, yes, at the moment it couldn't pass, but I believe that negotiations are going to be restarted in the next few weeks or or months. And maybe it's not going to be a perfect bill, but maybe it's going to do a couple things, like, for example, establishing a national register in which police misconduct is shared with various jurisdictions. Because right now, if you're a bad cop and you go to another jurisdiction, there's no database that shows that you're a bad cop. And so- I do believe that there's hope, not a lot of hope, but some hope. But yeah, uh, we've been seeing just too much of this uh, lately, and I've been seeing it my whole life, and it grieves me.
3: Yeah, at, at least in Nichols' case, uh, at least several police officers are uh, removed from their posts and uh, charged over murder or some other offenses. David, what, what's your take? Do you think, um, or how faithful are you in the system?
2: You know, I agree with everything Harvey said and everything that Joseph said, I think those are all great points. The the only thing I can think of adding is that there's a kind of a risk that we've had that that these problems have been exacerbated a lot by the sort of centralization of media power and and social media and the fragmentation that it it causes. The the fact that everything everything now is, uh, you know, online and sort of global rather than one-to-one interactions at the local level. And of course, the surveillance techniques, the policing and uh, law enforcement and, and such have been sort of revolutionized in many bad ways by, by the sophisticated surveillance uh, apparatus that we now have and systems that are being used now. The hope I see a little bit right now, a glimmer of hope, is that people are realizing this and people are writing books about this, that the reliance on, on digital spying and surveillance and also just the prevalence of digital interaction at all levels whether rather than face-to-face interactions in your local community. People are already realizing the, the problems that this has caused and is causing. And uh, there's many people who are trying or making a concerted effort to move in the ro- in the other direction. And I think with the issue of policing, that this might be something that could be incorporated as, as we begin to understand the source of these problems. If you have police officers who come, in some sense, either from or familiar with a local beat, a local area, a local culture, that can, uh, when they see someone on the street, that the two see each other not as, you know, someone who has a, a uniform and a gun, but just as sort of the local, someone that you, you can sort of recognize a type anyway from the local community. And try to, to treat these kinds of confrontations or one-on-one usually confrontations or, or the cops on one person. In the case of uh, Tyre Nichols, he was doing everything he could, could to uh, avoid confrontation. He was being very calm. He was just saying, I just want to go home. But, it, you know, it still happened. And I think it was because the police had othered him. He, he was not someone that we, we should worry about it was one of us anyway so i, I mean i think that's a, a possibility i have stories like joseph has too uh seeing uh, people like cops at hohai confronting some drunken guy well wielding a knife happened to me one night oh. and he was just there with a knife uh, kind of ranting and threateningly holding this knife and people were a little bit afraid these two cops came up he was a local beijinger so they were talking the same language and they didn't approach him mm. except they stood at a the distance they didn't try to to disarm him or to restrain him or to do what you see, you know, that's typical police activities is freeze, freeze, don't move, you know, this this sort of thing. They just talked to him. They said, you know, what are you doing with a knife? Where'd you get it? What are you doing? Why don't you go home? You're drunk. And they, they did this patiently for about 30 minutes. <laughs> a lot of bystanders. Eventually, the, the drunken poor guy got sort of out talked and uh, he, they said, put the knife down and walk away. And that's what happened. That was sort of the side sort of policing that we need, someone who treats this person as a human being in a local community mm. and not like a terrorist who's going to, you know, commit mass murder. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, those sort of things, I think we, there's a, there's already awareness that that's the direction we need to go
3: in. But as uh, Joseph mentioned, it's kind of a cultural difference. It's hard to change. Yeah. Can't You can't expect that to happen in those states. But last question to all of you. Yeah, you're saying you're hopeful that there could be a solution, but... If I ask you to, you know, name just the first step that um, the government in the States needs to take to untie this knot, what would you suggest maybe from uh, David?
2: Well, I mean, one immediate problem is the quality of the police force. And uh, we've seen, you know, there's a massive sort of retreat. People are quitting. The job is impossibly hard. And then also the, the these sorts of tests that they have to undergo in the training obviously has problems. I would say we need to, far from defunding the police, I think we need to put some money into their salaries, to put more effort into their training, make sure we have the right kinds of people that are involved, and make the police as as aware and sensitive to these issues as uh, you know some of the uh, some experts are. And you know the police, they're just schlubs working a job. And I think I would I would probably raise the status of police. And you have to do it economically, not just throw all this this responsibility at them without giving them any background or any, any vetting. Mm. So I, I think that's just one thing you might do is to, just the same with school teachers. You've got to increase their salaries and give them more social sorts of, sort of established before the education system can be in, improved either.
3: Mm. A Harvey?
1: Well, I hate this uh, term, defunding the police. I think it's really stupid. I think the uh, slogan should be, to reform the police in the ways that David uh, had mentioned and that Joseph and I had talked about. So yeah, I do think the number one change needs to be in how we train police. I I think here in Vienna, for example, that bus drivers or tram drivers get more training and longer training than police do in America. There's something wrong with that picture. And we also have to continue to sensitize police to their responsibility. And uh, hopefully over time that they could be the icons that uh, are portrayed in uh, TV programs, but uh, seem to be anything but uh, as we look at all the terrible things that have happened the last couple of decades.
3: And Joseph, what would be your choice?
0: I, I think uh, what's been said so far is pretty good. I, but, you know, I think we, we should think about things like uh, criminal justice reform, We need to think about why we lock so many people up to begin with and then what happens to them once they get to prison, uh, recidivism, these problems. Uh, I think the community policing model that uh, David was mentioning, uh, many experts have talked about this for years and wherever it's been used, it's it's been used well. And incidentally, there is a model uh, for it. Uh, We used to have a lot of abuse of LGBTQ people by local police forces. And um, um, there were efforts, and in, in certainly in, in some key cities, San Francisco, uh, DC, these are two cities that I know firsthand, but I'm sure other places, where that sensitivity training and, and positive engagement with the LGBT community created a greater sense of security and respect, at least in, in, in the professional sense of the word. And uh, also, you know, there, there are some models for community justice. And, and we've seen these, by the way, uh, really uh, practiced in recent years in uh, Native American communities who have asserted their rights as nations to hold their own people accountable in a local justice model. Understanding that simply shipping people off to prison means that you're subjecting them to greater injustices and then risking uh, something worse down the line due to recidivism.
3: What would be the you know most urgent uh, task on the list from your perspective?
0: Well, I... I think that the the term defund the police was an unfortunate term, but but what it was really I think what they were really thinking about and they were they were being too provocative with it and it backfired on them was that we need to shift funding. To, to other social services. Instead of having police respond to everything by perpetually growing police forces in order to deal with problems that they're not well trained to deal with, why don't we divert some of that money, defund that money, and shift it towards mental health services or, or social justice issues or, or social welfare instead of keep spending more money on, on police and prisons? I, I think that that would be Uh, a key starting point and unfortunately you know that movement really gained a lot of steam in uh, minneapolis due to the george floyd killing Uh, but it it eventually uh, the local community uh, was unable to, to advance with it for a variety of reasons, uh, but but largely due to the entrenchment of the status quo.
3: A little bit different, but still worth, worth trying. And uh, with that, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, Harvey Zodan, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and former Vice President of ABC TV Network in New York, and David Moser, Associate Professor of Beijing Capital, Normal University, for sharing your insights and experiences with us. So please feel free to leave a review or comment for us and subscribe to The Chat Lounge, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tian. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.